0: Hello, this is Focal Point for Wednesday the 10th of June and we're speaking about technology flops. Welcome to Focal Point, the podcast that shows you how to tap into the power of the internet in your business and your life. Now it's over to your hosts, Chris Pudney and Gihan Pereira for this week's edition.
1: Hello Chris, how are you going? I'm well, thanks, Gihan. How are you? I'm happy. I'm happy.
0: I'm in Prague and uh, enjoying my time here. It's uh, fairly early in the morning. I know it's afternoon for you, but I've been here a week and a half, and it's brilliant. It's wonderful. Good weather, uh, nice people, and lots to see and do.
1: And apparently the internet access there is far superior to that that we're used to in Perth. It is. I think that uh, one of the things I've noticed
0: is in Europe in general, uh, it just just shows how far behind we are in Australia and it's a it's a real shame and it's a um, it's something that if you don't travel you may not even realize it but there's there's fast easy accessible uh, internet pretty much everywhere so there are a lot of cafes and restaurants here that have free wireless internet um, which there is available in some place in Australia but it's not always um free, and it's not always uh, unlimited, whereas here, it just seems to be available for anyone who's, who's using those facilities.
1: Yeah, so we're really testing that technology today by uh, recording our podcast via Skype, so we'll see where the link lies.
0: Yeah, that's right, and that, as you said, when I first called in, you said it uh, it was as clear as a bell, and I've had that same comment from other people, clients and colleagues and friends that I've spoken to, they just say that talking through Skype uh, makes no difference whether I am on the other side of the world or on the other side of town.
1: So I tick in the box of uh, that technology known as VOIP, VoIP, Voice over IP. But uh, as you said in our introduction, we're going to talk about techno flops or um, more precisely internet technology uh, flops. Because uh, recently there was an article in PC Authority by uh, two commentators, Ian Thompson and Shaw Nichols, uh, ranking their top ten disappointing technologies. So we both thought that was quite thought-provoking, and so we're going to go through that list. We've made uh, a few omissions, because we're not so familiar with those particular technologies, and added a couple of our own. In some cases, it's a matter of watch this space, that uh, things might get better in the future, or in other cases, it was just an absolute overhyped piece of rubbish, as we'll see.
0: That's right, so let's get started. So the first one that we're going to talk about is virtual reality.
1: Yeah, so virtual reality or VR, uh, people are probably most familiar with that from various movies like Lawnmower Man and Strange Days, Um, but primarily it's a technology that allows the user to interact with a computer simulation of either a real or imaginary world, so it's like a full immersion in some kind of synthetic world. Um, but I've not had much experience with VR. I've played, uh, used a couple of uh, video arcade games. Um, and the one thing that uh, most people will remember about real uh, virtual reality is that you have to wear this cumbersome helmet. And I think the problem that VR currently faces is that you've got this cumbersome um, hardware requirement in order to get proper, fully immersive VR.
0: That's right. And there are some other versions of that where you don't get fully immersed in it. But, for example, I bought a Nintendo Wii. Um, last year, including the Wii Fit, and with that you can, you know, it, it responds to the movements of your hands and legs and your body, so it measures your center of gravity and uh, responds that way. So that's a little like a that's very popular uh, piece of hardware and software, uh, but it's not fully immersed VR, and I think that's the thing that's disappointing. That even though it's been talked up since well, I don't know 20 years ago now, um, it still hasn't reached maturity in in a way that people are are happy to use it.
1: Yeah, that's right. And um, you mentioned the we there, and one of the sort of middle grounds between fully immersive VR and just plain desktop um, computer graphics is this kind of augmented reality. So I was reading a, a journal article yesterday, which or a journal that focused on augmented reality systems that are coming out of our various universities. And that seems to be where much of the research effort is going towards things like um, head-up displays in vehicles that will mix computer-generated graphics with what you're actually seeing through the windscreen, or systems for use in, um, in robotic surgery and in design for engineering. So that's where research is heading and hopefully uh, VR is one of these things that just is ahead of its time and eventually the hardware that uh, is the current barrier to its adoption, will um, those hardware requirements will disappear.
0: Mm, And as you say, some of the the augmented reality applications may be the things that are actually realistic and practical. For example, the thing you mentioned about um, computer graphics in your car dashboard, I heard that that's probably going to be used for GPS systems, isn't it, where you can see a map... um, on your dashboard rather than having to divert your eyes to check out your little GPS
1: navigator. Absolutely, that would make some GPS systems much safer, being able to just uh, look through uh, um, an augmented system where you've got that map up in front of you on the windscreen rather than having to look down at some display that's not within the field of view when you're driving.
0: Yeah, so that's our prediction, that that augmented reality is probably
1: going to be the thing uh, rather than full virtual reality, that's going to really take off in the next few years. Okay. All right, so moving on to the uh, the next um, disappointment that these two guys mentioned, and that was alternative search engines. And by alternative, they meant an alternative to the 600-pound gorilla of web search, which we know as Google. So where's where's Google's competition?
0: And I remember when I first started my web business, which was about 12, 13 years ago, Chris, there were lots and lots of search engines around. There was Vista, Hotbot, Lycos, there was Yahoo, which is the granddaddy of all search, but there were a whole bunch of them around. And I think because none of them had uh, a really strong market leader position, it meant it was easier for other competitors that come in and offer something slightly different. And then Google came along and really took over the market. And ever since then, um, well, o- almost all the things the search engines I mentioned have died a natural death, except for Yahoo. And uh, others that come along are also seen as just, you know, like Google wannabes. And because of that, the problem is that because Google does such a great job, it's, it's very difficult to convince users to switch because you either have to be very, very good, better than Google, or do something differently.
1: Yeah, um, and so as you mentioned, there were all these uh, these search engines in the late 90s that were competing to be number one. Google came around, along with its page rank which seemed to set it apart from the others in terms of the quality of its search results and then of course we had the the dot com bubble bursting which took out a lot of these starts up and removed the, the competition from the landscape. So. Since then, we've had Google become even more dominant with uh, Yahoo sort of almost disappearing and um, and Microsoft's um, uh, search engine also um, gaining smaller and, well, not gaining, but losing market share. So that what we have is this single dominant, we have a monopoly as far as web search is, con- is concerned. And that can be unhealthy in that uh, strong competition compels um, Google and other search engine um, companies to innovate. So without that strong competition, there's there's the, the worry that we won't have innovation. But um, something that we've heard recently, uh, two new contenders uh, in the search space, search space, and that's Wolfram's Alpha and Microsoft's Bing search engines. Yeah, and these both of these, Chris, are probably worth uh, spending a little bit more time
0: on in a future podcast, whether we combine them or talk about them separately, because both Bing and Wolfram Alpha, um, unlike most of the others that have come along, um, seem to be potentially... Competitors to Google and reasonable competitors, and I think that's because they do things differently. As I said, so Wolfram Alpha um, works very different differently from Google. So it tries to be a bit more of an intelligent search engine. So rather than only finding information that other people have already. Uh, created, so it's not just a catalogue of information, it also can create information. Um, So we might talk about that a bit later, and and Bing, which is the the new kid on the block, has already jumped to number two, it's taken over from Yahoo, and that may be just because it's early days and people are just trying it out, Um, but that seems promising as well. So those those are both real competitors to Google, and I'm sure Google is keeping a very close eye on how both of those are doing. Yes, watch this space. Yeah, that's right, and I think this is, this is something that's worth talking about in a future podcast. Okay. So the next one these authors talk about is voice recognition, which is converting your spoken words into, into things that machines can understand. And if you've ever used Telstra or anybody else who has these automated voice recognition systems, particularly, and I've picked Telstra because their Telstra support service tries to use it all the time, so if you have a question about your phone or your internet access or anything, um, it's very frustrating. It's very frustrating. And you, and if you've used something like that, you know how bad it is. And I think that's because it's just very, very complicated. So we as humans do that sort of stuff like voice recognition and face recognition very, very well and intuitively. But we've had uh, millions of years of evolution to acquire those skills, and it's difficult to get computers to do the same thing.
1: Yeah, that's right. And um, when we talk about the systems that uh, people like Telstra and other um, phone phone bank and phone messaging systems use, they have they've got to contend with multiple different speakers uh, calling up those services, and then having to recognise the voices depending upon the volume levels and the person's accent, um, whether it's a male or a female voice. Um, they're also Simple, speech simpler speech recognition problems faced when you've just got a piece of software on your desktop PC, so it only has to recognise speech that uh, one, one user is generating. And I remember about 10 years ago I had uh, installed a speech recognition bit of software on my PC, and I went through all the process of training it to recognise uh, my voice and recognise my speech. Um, but even after all that, it was pretty inaccurate to the point where I went and got it to transcribe the Australian National Anthem. And uh, the results were so amusing, I forwarded them to uh, to various friends. So the problem that these systems face is that they require not only uh, huge system resources in terms of processing power and memory, but they also require some some really uh, clever software. And so those two those two problems have yet to be surmounted when it comes to speech recognition. We need more powerful systems, and we need um, the sorts of software that can solve the kinds of ai problems that humans have been able to solve uh, since we evolved
0: yeah that's right mm-hmm. and you know that said uh, i also like you chris about 10 years ago it was probably about eight or 10 years ago tried installing some speech recognition software on my computer and i had the same sort of problems that you did more recently though i've heard clients who just swear by the technology they um they think is fantastic so it certainly evolved. so People are using the um, software like Dragon, naturally speaking, seems to be the leading, at least the leading PC software for that. And they're just saying that it's streets ahead of what it used to be. And Dragon itself claims a 90 plus percent accuracy um, with a little bit of training. And that's what I have actually heard from people who use it, who say that it doesn't take much training anymore. And as you say, because it's just the one voice that it has to learn, it can do a reasonably good job.
1: So something for me to revisit then?
0: I think so. And again, I bought Dragon a couple of years ago, installed it, tried to do the training and got a bit bored with it. And since I got my new PC, I haven't reinstalled it. But again, it could be something that's worth looking into again. So I think that prognosis is that in general, voice recognition software is still a long, long way off, but uh, on a one-to-one basis, if you're using... Um, well-trained speech recognition software,
1: it's actually now plausible and usable and practical. Okie dokie. So if it can uh, successfully try and scrub the Australian National Anthem, that's the acid test. <laughs> yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> Alright, so moving on to the next one that was mentioned in the article, and that's Firewire, which is a technology for connecting uh, peripherals to computers. It's very similar to USB, but but how many people are actually using Firewire versus USB?
0: Yeah, and this is, I think, something that you know a little bit more about the history of it, Chris. And my just very naive understanding was that is a little bit like VHS versus Beta when it came to videotapes that Beta was the superior technology, but VHS had better marketing and gained market share quicker, and therefore the superior technology
1: um, never never really saw the light of day in a, in wide use. Yeah, I think that's a really good analogy in terms of. Uh Um, The way that the VHS versus beta wars panned out, people still claimed that beta was the superior technology, but um, just because VHS had uh, better marketing, was first to market and dominated the marketplace, it was the one that uh, was ultimately successful. Um, And people say similar things about Firewire. It was beaten to market when USB 1.0 came out. And then when USB 2.0 came along with similar um, performance characteristics to Firewire, there was nothing compelling people to uh, continue to use Firewire. And so as a result, when you buy a PC today, you have five or five or more ports for USB, um, and it's only rarely that you'll find a Firewire port. Mine happens to have one, but I've never plugged anything into it. Yeah, I don't even know if mine does have
0: one. Um... Maybe it does. I'm just looking at the side of it now and I can't see anything that, well, I can see a couple of things that look strange. But as you say, I've got four USB ports and sometimes I'm using all four because I'll have my mouse plugged in, my USB modem, um, my iPod and an external hard disk. And it just, just shows just how much we rely now on USB and how much manufacturers are using USB
1: as the industry standard. That's right. Yeah, if you've got a little port on your PC with 1394 written next to it, that's your FireWire port. It's IEEE's 1394 standard, which is uh, another name for FireWire.
0: Yes, and if you've got one of those, that's just uh, pretty much a waste of space at the moment, isn't it? Is. <laughs> <That's right>. Something
1: <laughs> so, you paid for, but you're not
0: going to use. Yeah, so it seems like that's one of those things where we can say this technology is, well, it's still around a little bit, but it's pretty much dead um, in the same way as beta is used in the industry. So it's I think beta tapes are still the choice for for movies and TV and film um, if you're a professional, but just in terms of public use, um, just like VHS, well was the standard while well, we're still using videotapes. In the same way with computers, USB is very much the standard. Absolutely. Yeah. Then the next one is interesting because it's a, it's again about a networking type of or connection protocol and this is Bluetooth and I was surprised that these two authors um, Ian Thompson and Sean Nichols said that this was disappointing because I actually find Bluetooth quite useful for the couple of applications that I use so for example uh, I have a Bluetooth um, ear set for my uh, mobile phone and also my the GPS in my car has Bluetooth so that I can do hands-free um, mobile phone calls through the GPS in my car and uh, Bluetooth is for those sort of communicating over short distances. And uh, I think it's still quite useful.
1: Yeah, I think I also disagree with them in, in ranking it as a flop. I think initially it was. It didn't meet up to the hype that uh, that surrounded it when it was released. Um, it took a long time for the kind of ubiquitous um, status that it now enjoys for, for Bluetooth to get there. And I think one of the things that they mentioned was that the early implementations of Bluetooth by the various manufacturers were incompatible, which really destroyed it. You, you had to buy all of your products from Sony or all of your products from Air in order for them to communicate properly using Bluetooth. But uh, since, since those incompatibilities have gone away, we now find Bluetooth everywhere. Pretty much all uh, mobile devices, whether it's phones or PDAs, run Bluetooth. All the major operating systems uh, have Bluetooth as standard. And as, as you pointed out, there are a variety of peripherals like um, headsets and hands-free setups in cars, and mice and keyboards and microphones that all are powered using Bluetooth. So, yeah, initially it was a flop. It didn't didn't meet up to the hype uh, that uh, surrounded it. But uh, nowadays it's um it's come on, uh, in, come on strongly since then.
0: Yeah, there's one other thing I'd like to add to that, and I think they make a good point in uh, one little... uh, It's a little bit of often a tangent, but they they make the point that Bluetooth, the idea of Bluetooth was that that you would then not need wires to connect your peripherals or your mouse or, or whatever to your computers. And the fact is you still do need a wire, at least one wire, which is the power cable to connect to your computers. And maybe when we go to wireless power, then Bluetooth will really come into its own because then you literally
1: would have a computer that you can just carry around without having to plug in any wires at all. Yeah, that's right. Wireless power is still uh, a, a nascent technology. It's a long way off. Um, but yes, getting rid of all these wires that hang behind our uh, our office desks or uh, or trail across the floor of uh, computer rooms would be uh, an absolute blessing. <laughs> you certainly would. You certainly would.
0: Okay, so the next one, uh, and I think we're up to number... Five, six, number six in our list. We've got got six, seven, and eight to go. Um, The next one is Zune, um, Z-U-N-E. And I think a lot of people haven't even heard of Zune. Um, Zune is Microsoft's rival to the iPod. And I think it suffers the same fate as all those Google wannabes, is that there's simply no really compelling reason to switch from the iPod. And I think, Chris, you think that it even goes a bit further than that, that there are reasons not to switch.
1: Yeah, I'm taking Ian Thompson's and Sean Nichols' word for this in so much as they say that it's, it's actually not... There's no compelling, There's a compelling reason not to switch to the Zoom in so much as that uh, it had all these lockdowns in that it had DRM, uh, that's Digital Rights Management, uh, which restricted the way that you could actually use media on the Zoom. There was no music service associated with the Zoom when it was first released, so Apple were very clever in tying um, the, the iPod to their iTunes store. And then there are some aesthetic issues like um, it being rather ugly and having a poor user interface. So, you know, if you're going to compete with a market leader like the iPod, you really have to have uh, a sweet device. And the Zoom was not up to scratch in that regard, according to the two commentators. Um, And it seems that sorry, it seems that Microsoft are actually going to repeat this mistake. They've launched a new marketing campaign for the Zoom, and there are rumours that they're going to uh, the next evolution of the Zoom will be a mobile games console. So it's going to be competing with the likes of Nintendo's DS and Sony's PSP. So they really have again another strong competitor they're going up against, and so they need to provide some compelling reasons to make a switch from those uh, those platforms to the Zoom.
0: Yeah, and I think that's that's the key issue, that there's there's really – like if all you're going to be is uh, an alternative to something that's already established in the marketplace, it's very difficult to get people to switch. Um, and if you're going to be even just a little bit better, even then, it's difficult to get people to switch. So even though I'm a PC user rather than a Mac user, I'm a very big iPod user. So I use iTunes. I have all my uh, podcast subscriptions in iTunes. I have my music collection. Um, burnt onto my iPod. I upload videos onto onto my iPod. I have software that will take DVDs that I buy and I can put them onto my iPod. So I have a lot of investment in the iPod and iTunes technology. So for me to switch to something else, it has to be more than a little bit better. It has to be a, a whole lot better. It's, it really has to have what um, these authors described as a killer application. And it doesn't, and the Zoom doesn't have that.
1: No, no. Well, before we um, move on to the final um, item that uh, the two commentators listed, their number one or their top-ranked technology flop, could we insert the one that um, I was going to mention, Giha? Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Okay, well the, the technology that I've uh, been disappointed, not having realised, is the technology referred to as OpenID. So we're all familiar with um, when you go to a particular website you're a member of, you have to log in, you have to provide a username and password usually, and as a consequence you typically have uh, you know dozens of these usernames and passwords that you have to remember. Well OpenID is a standard that allows you to have just one single digital identity. And then once you're logged in using that identity, your Open ID, then you have access to all of the websites and accounts and memberships that you have online that are part of the Open ID franchise. So it's a great idea. It's uh, it's it's just this single point of access to multiple websites. But unfortunately, it hasn't taken off, and I'd really like to see it take off. Um, The problem is, primarily, that too few online services have adopted OpenID, even though a large number of corporations, online corporations, have signed up to it. I've only come across one website that I use regularly that actually has an OpenID login. Um, So I don't know why that is, whether there's um, political or corporate forces at play behind the scenes, but OpenID has been mooted for several years now, but it's really uh, not come to the fore.
0: I think that's one of those things where it may be an economic situation, and it may be one of those chicken and egg situations where, if a lot of if a lot of websites were using OpenID, then there's obviously more incentive for somebody um, who creates a website to then uh, do the same because people would set up an OpenID account and they would um, have that and expect to use it all the time. But on the other side. Uh, until lots of people start using it there 's really not much incentive for organizations to set up websites with open ID. so it really is one of those chicken and egg situations where really I think that if people want to do it, that the websites have to bite the bullet and say okay we 're going to start implementing open ID. We know that it 's a little bit more expensive to implement because it just requires more work um, and we 're just going to be the leader and recognize that not many people are not many users have it at the moment, but we 're going to invest in the future. Yeah. Yep. Yeah,
1: that's a good analogy. I,
0: I saw a similar thing happening with PayPal, Chris. Uh years ago, you had to be a PayPal member to pay through PayPal, um, and it was a it was a real problem for people for websites that were taking payments through PayPal because not many people were PayPal members. Um, uh PayPal actually fixed it in a couple of ways. One is that they now allow you to just pay directly by credit card without signing up to PayPal. But another thing that helped was that over time, more and more people did become PayPal members. So now websites that do accept PayPal, um, it's, it's no big deal now because a lot of people who go to pay on those websites are already PayPal
1: members. Finally, you should mention PayPal because I think they're one of the most recent recruits to the whole open ID franchise, uh, but as yet when you visit PayPal, there's no uh, prompting you for an open ID identity so yeah, right. <laughs>
0: and, and yet, it's such a useful technology. It's such a useful feature for users. And I know this because um, Google <laughs> doesn't isn't using OpenID, but Google has a single point of access now for all its services. So again, I'm a big just just like I'm a big fan of the iPod and the iTunes combination. I'm a big fan of the Google bundle as well. So I use Google Reader for reading blogs. I use Google as my search engine. Uh, we use Google Docs for preparing our notes for this podcast. Um, there probably are probably other Google services that I'm using which I'm not, which are, uh, don't come to mind at the moment. I don't use Gmail, but I know a lot of people use Google's Gmail system for their email. And all of that, being able to get in using a single username and password, is so useful and practical. And it's one of the reasons why I do use a Google service rather than an alternative.
1: That's right. And, of course... You're- probably have the Google toolbar in your browser which allows you to enter your um, Google credentials straight into the toolbar rather than having to go to a Google login site.
0: Um, You're right. You're right. So there's a Google toolbar. Uh, There's a Google filling in form, So all of that just makes it so easy for me um, to stick to Google. And I think that if organizations started adopting OpenID widely, I'd be equally loyal to those organizations that would make
1: my life easier as an Internet user. Yeah, it's one of those compelling reasons to uh, become a member of a website. Yep. Okay, well, I'm sure our listeners are waiting with bated breath for us to unveil the uh, number one technology disappointment that at uh, yes. least, according to Stuart Nichols and Ian Thompson, although I have to agree with them as well.
0: Yes, drumroll, please. And and by the way, this is, even though we said that most of the things we talked about were internet technologies. this is not. This is, uh, it is technology, but not internet technology. Um, and I think that lots of people might be able to guess what this is. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right, it, it hasn't been mentioned yet. <laughs> it's Microsoft Vista which is Microsoft's current PC operating system, not for much longer, they're, they're bringing out some new thing called Windows 7 a little bit later, but um, I'm one of those people who had Vista foisted upon me when I bought my new PC, and um, if I'd known how bad it was going to be, I would have paid a little bit of extra money for them to uninstall it and put in Windows XP, which is what I was using before, which was running quite happily and was reliable and everything was working nicely, and then... I just got Vista and
1: things started falling apart. Yeah, it's amazing just how horrible Windows Vista has turned out to be, given the amount of time and the amount of money that Microsoft invested in this operating system and having done so, hyped it to such a degree that people had very high expectations. But as a consequence, uh, it was overhyped, it was expensive, it was late to market, um, and the product that uh, came out in the end was resource hungry. You had to have a new, you had to have a uh, graphics card. You had to have a good processor, a gig of RAM. Many older systems couldn't be upgraded because they had incompatible hardware. We probably all come across that annoying security manager that prompts us to allow programs to run. Um, so yeah, the list goes on and on. It's been an absolute train wreck.
0: And I think there's there's two
1: things here, Chris. There's,
0: there's two levels of this. So one is that there is some technology that's sometimes overhyped, and it turns out not to be as good as the marketing. Um, and that's one criticism. But with Vista, it's even worse. Uh, I think with Vista, most people, even big Windows fans, would agree that it was actually worse than what was out there before, which is Windows XP.
1: So it wasn't just a case that it was better, but not as good as um, advertised. It was actually worse. That's right, yeah. And speaking of uh, Microsoft fans, the technology analysts, Gartner Group, uh, who are usually, usually have quite good things to say about Microsoft products, they've recently recommended that businesses who are considering migrating from XP or an older operating system um, to Vista don't bother that they wait for Windows next operating system, Windows 7, uh, wait for that to be released, which is scheduled to be later this year, and migrate to that and skip Vista entirely.
0: And that makes sense for a couple of reasons. One is because Vista is so bad, but secondly, because Windows Seven is just around the corner. Apparently, it's just on the horizon, and I think even now you can just download it free if you want to run it and use it on your PC. It's a beta version, so it'll expire, but it's available. It's it's a reliable enough product that they're willing to make it available for people to try out. And the experts that I've heard talking about it are very impressed, and these are people who are not necessarily easily impressed, but they say really good things about Windows 7. So I think if you're in the situation where you've got XP and you're wondering about upgrading, I'd agree with uh, that Gartner advice to to wait and upgrade to Windows 7. So that's it, Keehan? That's it. So those are the technology flops that that we're we're talking about, as we said mainly from that article. I'm I'm sure there are others out there, and if you'd like to um, email us or comment on our blog post about other things that you think are technology flops, we'd be very interested to hear about them.
1: All right, so we're going to be uh, speaking uh, in a fortnight's time. You'll be in Prague still, I believe.
0: Yeah, that's right, that's right, depending on the timing that we do this podcast, that might be just before I finish my time in Prague, and uh, yeah, I look forward to that, and I think we, uh, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things that we talked about is that there are now some competitors to Google, and Wolfram Alpha and Bing both seem to be very promising, and so we might make our next podcast about that, Chris, just to give our listeners an idea of what's around the corner in terms of search. Yeah, sounds good, Kean. Good to speak with you again, Chris, and we'll speak soon. We'll do. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Focal Point podcast. You can find us on the web at www.ghihanperera.com/podcast. That's g i h a n p e r e r a. dot com. Subscribe to the podcast. Listen to all our past issues,
1: or leave us your comments and questions. We look forward to having you back next time.